Tails, more well-established lesbian. Chapter 12 That big gay elephant that had been in the room with us for the last couple of years was now very much a part of the family. Not like a let's tell the grandparents, you know, kind of in the family, but still. I knew that they knew. It was all out there. And I didn't have to keep any more secrets. And I've tried to never have any secrets quite like that ever again. Especially not in the way I live. But to be honest, the only people I've ever wanted to protect from the negative impact of me being me is my parents. And even then, I was only willing to go to a certain point. We all do things to make life easier with our parents. You pick an outfit that you kind of hope won't provoke a comment. Yeah, or in my case, you try to make sure that you don't cut your hair shorter than a 1.5 on the sides because that's too short for my mum. She can see my mum. She doesn't like it. So I either make sure I don't cut it that short or I make sure I don't see my mum for a couple of weeks after I get it cut that short. But aside from wearing the odd dress for an occasion, I'll be honest, I did very little the way they wanted me to do it. And of course, I fought them on it. But to me, there was a world of difference between the hassle they got from me not going along and being girly and the potential shame and outcast status that having a lesbian for a daughter might bring. I might be an only child, but my parents are not. And I've got 30 odd cousins who can attest to that. I'd actually come out to the ones I was close with. I kind of left it with my parents as to how they wanted to handle it with their families. I mean, my parents were who mattered to me. And I figured let them take their time with the people who mattered to them. I mean, one of my aunts did want to know if they were supposed to be surprised by this news. According to her, anyone who hadn't worked it out when I was about five was either stupid or in denial, said with that look that only an auntie can deliver. One of the nicest things was kind of that being able to be open about my relationship with Rose, for them to acknowledge her and her place in my life. So many good things actually came out of that one horrible evening. I already felt incredibly lucky to have walked away that night with nothing more than a head full of abuse and a fear in my stomach. I sat in that new flat, safe and sound, thanks to my parents and my privilege. The police had taken me seriously. My friends, they had been the best you could ask for. I had a support network rooting for me to make it. And despite that, I couldn't do anything other than turn it into a dramatic story for Down the Pub. I put on this facade 
of bravado and made out like it was nothing. Just another funny story. I might not have been the butchest version of myself that night, but nobody needed to know that. And I felt like I could at least butch up my reaction. You know, like, ah, it was fine. There's nothing to it. I really started to lean in to nights out with the lads, choosing to just push my feelings down and crack on. Now and again, that anger would bubble up. Drunk me had a short fuse and a big mouth. Looking back, it was a good job one of the lads was built like a brick shit house and a boxer to boot. Otherwise, I'd probably still be picking my teeth up off the streets of London. In some sort of weird overcorrection, I donned this air of false confidence, bordering on arrogance. Now, in some areas of my life, this turned out to be incredibly helpful. Helped me to push through some of my fears and my anxieties. In other areas, it was a liability. For example, on a night out. I was finding the world so much easier to navigate with a drink in my hand. And on occasion, a little confidence-boosting chemical in my system. Unfortunately, on those nights, I might have felt great, but I'm sure, like many others, to those around me, I was a very, very irritating twat. But that twat was discovering that I was not invisible to women. Mm -mm. There was flirting. There were possibilities. There were situations. Tempting situations. London had both my attention and my interest. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Rose and I's long-distance relationship was about to get a lot longer. So, I've survived year one of university and I feel like we can use the phrase survived. Summer is fast approaching. Normally, at this point, you would be looking forward to going home, perhaps to your bedroom, to your friends, to your life the way you left it nine months ago. But listeners, as you know, when it comes to moving houses, my parents have got four. And it is impressive form. When they were selling up in Wales, they decided that they would tell me about moving as and when the house sold. Figured they had a bit of time. So they put it on the market one morning and it had sold before I got home from school that day. This time, they waited for me to leave for university and six weeks later, put the house up for sale. It took them a whole week to sell it this time. Clearly slacking a little. I mean, my dad had often joked that one day they'd up and move and not tell me where they'd gone. And he could not resist the real life opportunity to play out this dad joke. So, 
For a good six weeks, I had no idea where my parents lived, except a bit closer to Wales. Going home for the first summer after uni is weird anyway. You've forgotten that if you go out, someone is going to ask you where you're going or what you're doing. You've probably developed a few housekeeping habits that are not going to cut it back at Shea Parents. And now, the people you live with will point out that you've slept in past 1pm again. All that freedom you had just feels like a mirage of an oasis in the desert. On top of this, my wonderful parents hadn't actually bought a new house yet because, well, hmm, I mean, where to live? Who knows? I think they were actually pins and maps involved at this juncture. They had optimistically rented a house that could accommodate me for visits. You know, ideally just for a weekend or two. But come summer, we were a cosy family unit of three living in the human equivalent of a rabbit hutch. And we were very out of practice. They had been enjoying their newfound freedom just as much as I had been. And everybody, quite frankly, was doing very well not to kill each other. I would like bonus points for not murdering them on the grounds that they had turned my long-distance relationship into a long-distance relationship. Like, now 250, 300 poorly connected miles between Rose and I. And I knew no one in this stupid new town. Not one person besides my parents, who were now telling me I had to get a job too. This was turning out to be a summer of sulking. It turned out instead to be a very random summer. This was the summer I decided to take up rock climbing. I learnt to climb indoors, they took us on a lovely trip outside, I fell off a cliff, I fell into a cliff, I cracked a rib. Oh, we laughed, it was such fun. But I had to get this job, so I applied for temp work and I got a temporary job. And I ended up working in the medals department of an RAF base. Genuinely spending my days cutting the correct length of ribbon for each medal that was to be sent out. Uh Uh-huh. Cutting the right length of ribbon to go with a medal. That was my actual job for eight hours a day. And yes, it's as boring as it sounds. So... It's been a pretty stifling summer so far, living back at home with my parents. And the new university year is in touching distance. I've sorted out a flat share with two of the brilliant lads from my course, and I'm excited and ready for a change. And I have made a decision to make a bold change to my hair. For my fresh, new, back-to-university look, I was going to bleach my hair blonde. So far, 
just the tips. That's all I'd done. I'd frosted my tips back in the day. I'd even gone as far as to have highlights at some point. But now, now I want you to go full blonde. You know, make an impact. If you have not seen Paul Bettany as Silas in the Da Vinci Code listeners, you should probably Google him right about now. Mm-hmm. I looked paler than that. And I didn't have the blonde eyebrows going for me either. I'd spent hours in the chair. I lost God knows how many layers of my scalp. And my mother legit reacted like I was a ghost when she saw me. (laughs) I have made many, many bad hair choices in my time. But this has to top the list for both pain and price. And wow, do I not have the colour in for that look. (laughs) Oh, that was a lesson learned. And as I returned to university and had to have my ID picture taken, God, help me. Thankfully, my roots started to return to normal, as did everything else. And things were actually pretty good. Our flat was a proper student flat, you know, with terrible furniture, that kind of cane furniture that you didn't so much as sit in as to fall in. You know, there was damp in the corner of, I think, every room. And of course, an avocado-coloured bathroom suite. P.S. The Resistance. Now, Sam had been my flatmate at the end of the last year in the swanky flat. Now, we got none great, so we found a new flat together with two decent bedrooms and, well, a box room with a boiler in it. We figured if we got lucky, we might find somebody to rent it. And as it was, on day one of year two, we found our third flatmate. Nicholas was from Belgium and he hadn't sorted out year two's accommodation. He just turned up on day one and hoped for the best. He took one look at the room, heard the price and moved in. Nicholas came from wealthy, wealthy parents. And quite frankly, he could have rented the entire flat twice over on his budget. But he was a wise man and he preferred to spend that money in far more entertaining ways. Now... You'll recall I'd mentioned I'd been leaning in to my nights out with the lads towards the end of year one. Uh, And I found myself in some tempting situations. And I didn't resist them all. Or many, if I'm brutally honest. I lived like I was single from Monday morning until either I got on a train or she got on a train on a Friday. And then I was all about the relationship. Half of me wanted Rose to be my fairy tale and to live happily ever after. The other half of me wanted to fuck half of London. And I knew what I was doing was wrong. You know, I always did feel shit about it, but then I'd go crawling to her under the guise of being honest. And I'd just dump my shit on her for her to deal with it. Making it her problem. Her decision. She'd say things like, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. 
until next time, I guess. A summer in a town of nothingness had me dying to get back out and about in London, or even just in my uni town, anywhere else but there. So year two started much like year one had left off. My mistakes, as I'd call them, weren't as frequent, but when they happened, there was little to no repercussion or consequence at the time. Six or seven months kind of flushes past. Parties at the flat, after work drinks with my workmates from the shoe shop, nights out in London, or a war of attrition with two lads over the washing up. I tell you, you're always one of the lads until something domestic needs doing. Mm-mm, I don't think so. Stubbornness prevails over gender roles once more. You will learn, boys. You will learn. And now, it was work experience time. And I got shipped off to a company in central London. Just a stone's throw, literally, from St James's Palace. As an aspiring dapper butch, oh, I loved that part of London. I loved getting suited and booted every day. Crowded tube trains, mm, not so much, but St James's, Green Park, you know, the Ritz is there, you've got the palace, you know, even going in and buying your cigarettes in a tobacconist is just an experience. I loved the area. And I tell you what else I loved? I loved going for drinks after work in central London. In Soho, preferably. Liked a bit of Carnaby Street too. And I learned a great deal during this work experience placement. But the biggest lesson I learned had nothing to do with work. My first girlfriend, Stacy, you remember Stacy. We'd stayed in touch a bit. Not a huge amount, but kind of checking in every now and again. Stacy had had like a much tougher year or so than I had, and she'd actually lost a girlfriend in really tragic circumstances. And she wasn't out to many people. Didn't have that many people she could talk openly to. Um, and so she talked to me and Rose knew we talked and, and why we talked more importantly and the four of us were supposed to go out to dinner together this was all very civilised but uh, Stacy and her new girlfriend myself and Rose we were going to be going out for dinner after work one evening in central London and Rose unfortunately last minute gets called into work and cannot make it and for some reason, I don't reschedule. I go and attend the most awkward dinner ever. Ex-girlfriend, new girlfriend, and ghost of an ex-girlfriend. All at one table. Stacy must have been having quite the evening. I'll be honest with you, even I was finding it a bit. So I drank. And it did, it got better as I drank. And we moved on. And we drank some more. 
and then it got late. So we moved on again and we drank some more. And as we moved on, as it got later, the music got louder. And we were in a booth, getting closer and closer to each other just to be heard. Not that anybody's talking any sense that anyone needs to listen to. And then Stacy and her girlfriend started getting off with each other. Full-on, enthusiastic, snogging. And I'm going to call it snogging because it wasn't all that sexy. Can it get more awkward, I asked myself, as I tried to look anywhere else. But out of the corner of my eye, I can see the um, action subside while I'm scanning the room, hoping to spot someone, anyone I know, looking for an escape route that avoids me actually just saying out loud, I think I'd like to go home now. But no such luck. There's a couple of shots on the table in front of me and I down one. Bad mistake. Repeat after me, listeners. No good can come of shots. No good can come of shots. You have been warned. No good. Stacy leans in and she apologises for... um. Leaving me out is how she phrases it. And I'm all like, no, no, I get it. You guys are like super cute together. Are you carry on? Like, and I'm sort of waving her away while I'm still desperately looking for somebody to help me extricate myself from this situation because, well, it's a, bit, it's a bit much. And then Stacy kisses me. And it takes me a moment when I pull back pretty quickly and I look from her to her girlfriend. I might be drunk, but I do not have a death wish. Please don't punch me, please don't punch me, please don't punch me, please don't punch me, is all I can think. And then she kisses me. Not the reaction I had braced for, just between you and I. And now they're staring at me like I might punch someone. I mean, I'm confused, and it's late, and I'm drunk, and I'm flattered, but I'm confused. And they're still staring. So, is this like some sort of threesome situation happening here? If you want it to be, says Stacy. At which point I down another shot that is sitting on the table. Even as I drink it, I know why we're doing shots now. These two want a threesome. With me. If I want. And aside from a fleeting concern about the impact my level of inebriation might have on my performance... All thinking and rational thought ceased. The feeling brain was in charge now and driving. And we are going to Ego City. If you were hoping for a sexy threesome story, this is where I'm going to break your heart and potentially lose you. Because three hammered, inexperienced women in a bed, 
makes for hmm more self-consciousness and awkward hilarity than it does sensual tales of pleasure my ultimate takeaway from that experience if you're gonna be part of a threesome with a couple don't be one of the people in the couple there were some looks you know those kind of looks the you like it more when she does that or you don't make that noise when i do it just all those little sort of mm, moments that would cross their face add this to the insecurities of drunk people mixed in for good measure and oh, there was an evening and then there was the morning after fraught with tension I assume to avoid being left alone with each other immediately it was decided that you know I'd be escorted essentially to the station that we should all get some coffee together my hangover desired no company just my own bed far far away from the row that was brewing between these two who were starting to reach the limits of what passive aggressive could achieve the world's most uncomfortable round of hugs capped off that experience and yes listeners their relationship went sideways shortly thereafter coincidence possible Now, the last time I'd confessed to cheating on Rose, she had said to me, if you tell me you've cheated on me one more time, we are done. And instead of changing my behaviour, I simply decided that I wouldn't tell her anymore. I mean, I can hear my own logic, but I'd still like to give 19-year-old me a smack in the mouth come on dude life rolled on and i sat my end of course exams and i applied for the degree top up the year after in a bid not to have to go home again that summer i got myself a full-time job did a bit of negotiation with the landlord and he gave us a summer rate if i did all the redecorating work that he would have done while we were away we had ourselves a deal and so Rose and I played house for the summer. For the most part, it went well, but oof, real life started to get in the way. Our relationship, unpacked from its weekend box, struggled under the constant exposure. I think we were both a little relieved when September came and I went back to uni. Nicholas and I had both been accepted onto the degree course and Nicholas decided he'd come back and live with me. Sam, on the other hand, had been accepted too, but get this, he was moving in with his girlfriend. And so we needed a new flatmate and we found ourselves a fresh-faced first year to take his room. We're all set for an excellent third and final year of university. Or so I thought. Rose had started mentioning some new friends she was hanging out with. Just a couple, Claire and Matt. 
two names that started coming up a lot. Just people she'd been hanging out with. And then soon it sort of became a little clearer that it was mostly just Claire that she was hanging out with. And there was a part of me that was just kind of glad that she was making friends, that, you know, life was all good after coming and spending the summer uh, with me. You know, she was having fun. It was all good. I mean, there was a tiny bit of suspicion, but I figured I couldn't judge her by my standards. And plus, it's not really like I had a leg to stand on. At Rose's 21st birthday, I probably should have realised what was going on when she was just a little bit upset that Claire didn't show up to her party. And honestly, given how she'd been going on about her, I was surprised that she hadn't shown up. And I thought these two were BFFs. Rose sort of did a reasonable job of pretending that all was well, but when a birthday call came in from Claire, she perked right up. I don't know what it was. It was maybe arrogance or ignorance, but I was not putting two and two together at this point. That would come later. Just a week later, in fact. Rose had been down at mine for the weekend as usual. Well, not quite as usual. Things definitely weren't great between us. And Sunday morning comes and I'm just making conversation and I ask what time train she's going to get today. Oh, it's okay. Claire's picking me up, she says. What the actual fuck, I think to myself. Why is she picking my girlfriend up to drive her home? Suspicious. She's got a job at Heathrow and then she's going to give me a lift on her way back. Hmm. Okay, logistically, that does actually make sense. And, well, the trains are a massive ball lake. But still, I was jealous. And Rose was being ever so slightly off with me. She's not quite at ease. I still hadn't met Claire at this point. I didn't know much about her other than I'm pretty sure she'd mentioned that she was in the army or something. And so I decided that maybe now would be a good time to dig a little. Uh, so, uh, what is it that Claire does to be driving to Heathrow on a Sunday? Turned out she was a close protection officer in the army. Dropping off some major or some important VIP to the airport. I mean, fucking hell. That's a pretty butch job for starters. And I started to wonder how intimidated I should be while Rose sort of practically counted the minutes for her arrival. I mean, she was kind of ready to grab her bag and run. But I insisted, no, no. Claire and Matt must come in for tea. You know, she's doing me such a favour, taking such good care of my girlfriend that the least I could do was provide a cuppa. And it turned out that Matt wasn't just a mate, he was actually Claire's work partner. She came into my house. She's taller than me, 
She's butchering me, even with long hair. But she is wearing a terrible suit. And then worst of all, worst of all, white sports socks with formal black shoes and black suit trousers. I have hated that look since school. It wasn't okay on Michael Jackson and it sure as shit isn't okay on Claire. Can't stand it. Between that and the way she is looking at my girlfriend in my living room right now, it was clear to me that we weren't destined to be BFFs ourselves. So she kind of come into my house with a shed load of attitude. You know, essentially swinging her big army dick. And honestly, that's kind of all she had on me was physicality. I watched a number of jokes sail right over her head as she postured and posed. Matt turned out to be a pretty decent enough bloke and, you know, we made some decent small talk while he finished his tea. Rose went off to grab the last of her things as Matt used our facilities, leaving just Claire and I in the room alone. As soon as they had left, our hostility towards each other became visible. Body language changed. I was pretty certain at this point that they had slept with each other. There was just something about the way they looked at each other there was a smirk on Claire's face that I wanted to punch clean off finally she strings a sentence together you don't deserve her she muttered at me not sure that's your business I tell her she stands up and sort of sweeps her suit jacket open and then sort of back and tucks it behind a gun holster that has a gun in it. Rearranges her shirt a little bit, closes the jacket and sits back down. I might make it my business, she says to me. Clearly a little show of power there from Claire nice subtle tasteful mmm I am pissed the fuck off like I hate guns for a start I really really hate guns and I am feeling disrespected on so many levels right now but let's all take a moment here Fighting her is clearly a bad plan. For a start, she's in the army, which means she's probably well-trained. And, well, literally, she is armed right now. Second of all, this is my living room, so I don't really want to break stuff. And thirdly, not once in my life have I ever impressed a woman by fighting in the street, in a club, in school, just it's never impressed a woman. And especially not if you're the idiot who starts it. Thankfully Matt returns and I leave the room and go and help Rose 
get her stuff together. I don't ask any of the questions that I've got in my head because I already know the answers. It felt like an out of breakup experience. Like I've detached from myself and I'm now floating above the situation, just watching, helpless to do anything to stop what's happening. Instead, I didn't say a word. I swallowed my anger and hoped that this wouldn't be the last time that I kissed her. Even though everything about it felt like a long kiss goodbye. I watched her drive away and I just knew I'd lost. And a week later it was, it was over for good. Two years, six months, two weeks and three days. Done. Look, that's according to my diary, just in case you were wondering. I didn't just sit here and calculate that. Apparently a very sad and heartbroken me wrote that down. Two years, six months, two weeks, three days, apparently. But guess who was there to pick up the pieces? Oh, yes, you've guessed it. My wonderful parents. God bless these two. I'm going to have to start buying them better Christmas presents. <laughs> they had come and scooped me up from university, taken me home, and we were now out the next day. Doing a spot of retail therapy. God, such good parents. And in a moment alone, I think my mum had gone off to look at something in a shop. My dad and I found ourselves standing around waiting for my mum. As we often did. And God bless him, he put his best foot forward and used my favourite line he has ever uttered to me. So... I hear you've got trouble at mill. <laughs> and I smiled at myself at his effort and his choice of phrase. And simply said, Not really, Dad. I ain't got a mill anymore. Thank you for listening to chapter 12 and for coming back week after week. You guys have made this such a worthwhile endeavour for me and I am grateful to each and every one of you who reaches out, gets in touch. I do appreciate you massively. If I could ask a huge favour, if you do listen to the podcast and you do like it, please subscribe, please leave a review if you can, please share it with a friend, tell someone, tell anyone. Um, it all really, really helps. Um, don't forget you can get in touch with me on Instagram at wellestablishedlesbian on Facebook which I don't think is we're allowed to use the word lesbian on so just type in tales of a well-established lesbian it will pop up and there is our own little community on reddit r slash t-o-a-w-e-l that is your community you can post whatever you like in there share your stories share your experiences share your memes if you've got questions for me throw them all up in there and i will do my best to answer them otherwise thank you as always for the privilege of your time 
I hope you have a fantastic week and I will see you next week for chapter 13.